Today's episode of the Read More podcast is brought to you by the Miami Book Fair International. Eight days each November and all year round with writing workshops, author events, and more. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Our guest today is Patricia Engel. Her third novel, The Veins of the Ocean, was just published earlier this month to critical acclaim. Her two previous novels, Vita and It's Not Love, It's Just Paris, were both award-winning, with Vita making several best-of lists in 2010. You can find out how to win a free signed copy of The Veins of the Ocean on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Patricia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The Veins of the Ocean is about a woman, Reina Castillo, who spends a significant part of her adult life devoted to her brother who's in prison for killing a baby. And it's as if she's in prison too, until she meets Nesto, a man who helps her sort of break free from all of that. The action takes place in Miami, as well as in Colombia and in Cuba. Reina is Colombian-American, and Nesto is a recent arrival to Florida from Cuba. Now, things start off really fast in this novel. The first page just drops us off as readers into a very important space, a very important time, a key spot. Now, sometimes when I'm reading a novel, I notice that, you know, it sort of takes a while to get into it. It's like the author is sort of warming you up for something really big to come. But you're giving us this big scene right off the bat. Is that always how you had planned to start the novel? Uh, well, I started this novel as a short story, so the opening of the novel is was a complete st- short story for some time, for several years, although I always had a feeling that I would return to it, to write it as a novel. But I chose to start with that scene because it's, it's a defining moment for this family, for Raina and her family, so much so that it becomes the family myth, the family legend, and uh, of course the family tragedy, the, the one event that changed everything. I thought it was important to start with that scene, and of course it's a scene that, um, that reveals a lot about the, the family members and their relation to one another. Well, one of the topics you come to again and again in the book is this idea of generational curses. I mean, we see Raina and her mom experience some of the same mistreatment at the hands of men. Her brother, Carlito, in many ways mimics his father and his father's father. What made you want to explore this topic? I think what some people think of as a family curse is often just the, the repetition of trauma and what we understand to be trauma, as it is in this family, but they don't really have the, the know-how to really understand everything that's happened to them or see how they're perpetuating this kind of behavior in their own lives. And I think that's a, that's not an uncommon thing. There's some famous families out there that, that in popular culture we think of them as cursed families, and we don't really take time to understand how, how these individuals are, are living with traumas that they've experienced and why that would naturally come to the surface again in their own adult lives. Well, another topic that you explore in depth here is the plight of the prisoner. I mean, we see that with Carlito, how he's treated by the system and the effect that has on him. But we also see how it affects Reina. And then there are other characters who are seemingly imprisoned, even if they're not actually behind bars. What fascinates you about how a person, about the ways a person can be free and then yet not fully free? Um, to start, I was 
very interested in in the actual prison system and specifically how uh, prisoners, the families of the imprisoned, experience prison alongside with with the the sentenced, with the guilty even, and how they reconcile their their familial love um, for someone who has done something terrible, somebody who has been deemed unfit for society and has had all their rights taken away from them. Um, and love just doesn't go away under those conditions. So that was the first um, grain of interest there. And then I was also interested in, in prison and incarceration and captivity as a construct in the way that it's experienced, not only on the, the practical and physical level, but also emotionally, sentimentally, and um, socially in terms of how the, the, the prisons that society perpetuates and, and the way that we often punish ourselves in ways that we're not even aware. As the title suggests here with your novel, a lot of the action takes place in and around water. What resonates with you about this type of setting and what it allows you to do as a writer? Uh, I knew that the ocean would be prominent in this novel in the ways that it's it's affected the lives of the two protagonists, Reina and Nesto. The defining moments of their lives have revolved around water and it's also um, going to be the what they need to overcome in, in many ways in order to to um, reach some level of transformation in their own lives. And on a personal level, I've always been fascinated by the ocean. I grew up far away from the ocean inland, and perhaps that's why I have a bit of a romantic view of it. And I've been living here in South Florida for 12 years where I see the ocean on a daily basis. And and I, I think that those of us who are lucky to live near the ocean um, experience water and nature in, in a different way than those who live far from it. You cover a lot of ground in this novel, as we've talked about already, touching on life in prison, uh, the lives of people who work with large mammals like dolphins, as well as conditions in Cuba under the Castro regime. How long did you spend researching to prepare to write this novel? The first chapter of this novel was written in 2008 while I was writing my first book, Vida, and then I wrote another novel, It's Not Love, It's Just Paris, in the meantime, and I didn't return to it um, until about 2012, and that's when I, I started working on the novel full-time. But my researching and writing was happening simultaneously, and I would say that all occurred um, over a four-year period. Another thing that you go into a lot of detail about here is the Afro-Caribbean religion of Santeria, of which Nesto is a believer. Did that also require a lot of research for you? And what role do you see religion playing in your narrative? Yeah, one I um, when I was traveling to Cuba doing research for this book, a lot of my research revolved around the Afro-Cuban faiths um, and Yoruba religions, and I spent a lot of time researching that in different ways, spending time and with communities of practitioners and temples and ceremonies, in addition to just regular academic research and testimonies. Uh, so it was quite extensive, and it was important because. Um, Nesto is of Afro-Cuban descent, and he's a product of, of Cuba now, um, a very recently arrived exile as opposed to exiles who left decades ago. 
And the way Cuba is now, Afro-Cuban faith is, is more prevalent than ever. So for me to ignore it would just, would just have been a, a, a falsehood. Um, and faith does figure in the novel in the sense that Reina is a character who's been raised with more or less a traditionally um, religious base, which uh, she quickly rejects and, and steers away from as she's kind of lost her faith in coping with all the trauma that's happened to her. And on the other hand, Nesto, who has been raised literally in a society that rejects religion, where religion has even been forbidden, has somehow managed to hold on to his faith in spite of the circumstances that he's endured. So I thought that was interesting how the two coming from their, their specific experiences approached uh, faith and a belief in something greater than them in, in different ways and what they would have to offer each other based on that. Well, in this novel, you also touch on colorism quite a bit. You know, the whole idea that in non-white communities, those with lighter skin are favored. Is that something you feel like you had to explore just because you were dealing with stories about people from the Caribbean? Yeah, I think that there's a tendency to look away from that, but it's su- such a such a clear social trait, especially in Caribbean communities and Latin communities, where um, the the complexion, the color of one's skin is, is a form of currency, and, and, it's, and it speaks to their, their value in their community, and someone with lighter skin, for some reason, can see, be seen as having greater potential or greater value than someone who doesn't, and the two characters experience it in different ways. I thought that was interesting, and it's something that I encountered a lot in my, in my research travels. Um, even based on my my own skin tone and how it how it was perceived and received in different communities, and I knew it was important that these characters um, are are able to confront that as part of their identity because in so many ways it has dictated the opportunities available to them in their lives. Parts of this novel, you throw in you know Spanish words and phrases. Did you grow up speaking Spanish and English? Yes, I did. I grew up fully bilingual. What role do you think that plays in your writing, the fact that you see things in two different languages? I tend to write bilingual um, protagonists because it, it interests me. One thing that interests me about, um, have I speak three languages now, um, but people who have access to multiple languages is that um, you're able to draw upon greater um, verbal resources to express the human experience. I think we often don't recognize the limitations each language has and how each language is limited by its own um, cultural experience. So I can just say on, on a, you know, a very superficial level that there are times when, when there are simply no words in the English language to convey what I'm speaking. And in that situation, I would reach for something in Spanish or possibly even French, or if I have a greater understanding in even another language, I would, I would reach for that. And that's, that's what's exciting to me about language is that it's something that's malleable and that, um, you know, that it can be, can be um, tailored to the individual. Okay, well, let's switch gears now. I really like to talk a little bit about your reading life. Um, here at Read More, we always want to know how writers have been influenced by what they've read. 
So can you tell me the first thing you read that really resonated with you in a deep way? I was always reading growing up, I but I read a lot of comic books growing up, and um, I think that's where I started to enjoy story and narrative and character and dialogue and and um, images, you know, the images that were provided along with comic books, uh, Archie comics in particular. Uh, and then at a certain point, I think I graduated to the Babysitter's Club books and um, also the Rats of Nim books. I used to really like those. Um, but I have to say that my consciousness, my, that desire that I started to feel that I would be somebody who writes and I wanted to be a writer, though I didn't yet know how or why or how to go about this on, in a practical way. Um, probably that started to occur when I was around 14 years old and the books that I was choosing that really hit me on a profound level around that age 14 15 years old I would say were um, The Lover by Marguerite Dura, um, Aitituba Black Witch of Salem by um, Maurice Condé and uh, The Stranger by Albert Camus and um, The Four-Chambered Heart by Anais Nin those were probably the most formative books in, in my early formation as a writer, and they continue to be favorites of mine. And I didn't realize it back then, but I, I see it now that those were all writers who were writing from a position of dislocation and exile with, with their feet planted firmly within two cultures. So I think there was something in those voices that, that spoke to me, although I couldn't identify it at that time. Okay, well, you've already given me uh, some of your favorites there, but we also always like to know, you know, if you have three particular books that are just really special to you, and if you're in a situation where you could only read three books, three books you've already read in the past, so you couldn't read any new work anymore, which three would you choose? Well, that's easy because I have a habit of rereading the same books. <laughs> Um, so one of them is The Life Before Us by Roman Gary. Um, that is one of my all-time favorites. Uh, another one would be The Lover by Marguerite Dura, which I already mentioned. But um, just I guess just to give you two besides that, another one called Rosario Tijeras by Jorge Franco, Colombian writer. I really love that book too. And um, let me think of one more. Um, probably some short stories. Um, maybe The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven by Sherman Alexie. Well, on the flip side of that, you mentioned you, you know, have these books you read, you like to read them all the time, you know, reread them all the time. Is there a book that you have struggled with and, and haven't been able to get through and you find yourself maybe trying to read it, but it's just not resonating with you and so you put it back down without finishing I'm thinking of maybe a book that would be you know well known most people have heard about it maybe it's very popular but it just didn't do it for you there are many there are many and I used to feel guilt about that and at a certain point I just realized life is too short and if a book is if I'm str struggling with a book I probably will just put it aside and maybe give it away um, there are many I don't know if I should name them because what doesn't speak to me could just as easily speak to somebody else um, but there are there are often books that I, I think I can't get past kind of the, the glaring blind spots um, or the, the perspective 
even if they're you know fabulous in terms of language or construction or voice um, sometimes maybe I take books too personally I think that happens to a lot of great readers and and you know and writers as well um, but yeah there are many and I don't think anyone should feel ashamed of that are you sure you don't want to give us just one example because when you said those glaring blind spots I mean I thought that was really interesting because sometimes you know we get you know these books come out and maybe they get lots of press and they're doing really well but it takes you know a cultural critic to come out and say well you know there's a problem here um, despite all this praise this book is getting it's it's forgotten a whole class of people or it's you know portraying people in very stereotypical ways so I'm just interested is there you know one you'd feel comfortable mentioning just that has those blind spots hard to think of one right now but there's a whole list and I'm conflicted because I know the great effort that it takes to simply complete a book so I can appreciate a writer on that very basic level the on le- um, the work level uh, but there are times I'll give you an example of things that, that really irk me in writing um, superficial research for example when I read a book and I realize I know more about the subject or the place than the writer or that the writer is just taking liberties that are absolutely insensitive to the people they're describing or when people are treated as landscape rather than than for their humanity that that really bugs me and I think that those are things that that come up all too often especially in American fiction I know you're not teaching right now but I'd love to know know, when you are teaching what is your favorite book to teach you know what do you really like introducing to readers for the first time I teach a lot of short stories um, because I think it's a great way to expose students to a lot of different voices very quickly Um, so some of the people that I that I teach um, uh, Sherman Alexi, who I mentioned before, Janelle Diaz, Lauren Groff, Danielle Evans, um, Amy Bender, um, James Baldwin, Uzzuddin Maiwala, Chris Abani. Well, you've mentioned, you know, one Colombian writer. Are there any new writers who are coming from Colombia or who are Colombian American you think that more people should know about in America and more people should be reading yeah there's so many I'm wild for a Colombian writer named Santiago Gamboa Um, one of his books was just translated to English um, called Night Prayers it's really exceptional he's got another one translated as well called Necropolis I think he's a really exciting and brilliant writer Another one who's not yet translated, but uh, for anyone who reads Spanish, her name is Margarita Garcia Robayo. She's really great, too. Um, there, Who else? Um, Juan Gabriel Vasquez is really wonderful. Um, Hector Abad. There's many. Well, I know that The Veins of the Ocean just came out, but... Are you already working on something new? I have some ideas, but I haven't yet committed fully to a new project. Because it, in order to write a book or take a book to completion, it takes a level of a sustained obsession. And I'm this book that the veins of the ocean that I that I just uh, that was just published took such a high 
level of focus and I wrote it with such intensity and it really took over my life in so many ways that I'm just kind of getting out of that so I think it'll be a bit of time before I ease into my next my next novel I don't yet know what it will be well what are you reading right now Right now, uh, last night, the book I was... Re- I read several books at the same time, I should say, but last night's book was um, Jennifer Seng's uh, novel, Mayumi and the Sea of Happiness, and I'm enjoying that a lot. Okay, well, Patricia Engel, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. We also want to thank the Miami Book Fair International for sponsoring today's show and hosting us at the Freedom Tower in downtown Miami. Please go to our website, readmorepodcast.com, to find out how you can win a free signed copy of The Veins of the Ocean. You can also follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton, reminding you to read more.